Alright, well, good morning to everyone. Let's uh, go ahead and pray as we get started. Lord, we thank you for um, another day that we can gather together as your people and um, sit at the, the feet of the apostles and, and look at your word and, and hear it read and, and taught and proclaimed. Uh, we thank you for, uh, for this. We thank you too that we have opportunity to, to speak to you and uh, respond to what you say to us and, and uh, that you hear us. We thank you that we can fellowship together as your people. And uh, we pray for these things today, that you would bless our day and that you would be honored in, in each of these things. And so we uh, pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> well, um, last time we resumed the study on this skill of studying the scriptures, becoming a student of the word, and uh, we had started on the different genres of the scriptures and uh, list the different ones there for us, and then we started, uh, when I was doing it before, on narrative, and uh, ended up more or less stopping in the middle of things, and so now, last week, I wanted to look at some narrative and do some actual how-to things, some practical aspects of it, and uh, we, we got through some of it last week and, and had to quit. So let's resume that by turning to Genesis 22 again, and <clears throat> you recall that we read through the, this section, verses 1 to 19, and we were then uh, basically breaking it up into thoughts, to paragraphs, and summarizing those paragraphs in uh, approximately seven words. And uh, it's a, a helpful skill, um, just a practical thing to do. Uh, it helps you to break down the passage and summarize it and uh, focus on, on what's there. Um, <clears throat> now, another thing that we did is we were looking at the different words that are repeated. This is a common aspect of narrative. Uh, seeing repetition, and in so doing, it helps us to understand the point of the passage. So what I want to do here is uh, I want to ask for um, uh, some help, and um, I think it's seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, yes. All right, I want seven helpers here. So uh, who's willing to help out? All right, I see three right here, Emma. All right, see two more over there. Anybody on this side? <laughs> Joe? <laughs> All right. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. Uh, I want you to look through these verses, and I want you to count how many times you see a particular word. So, Ben, did I see your hand? Why don't I give you uh, the name God? And uh, who was the other one, Heather? Uh, count the number of times we see the name Abraham. And Philip, the name Isaac, and Matthew, the name Yahweh, or Lord, right, in capital letters. And um, let's see, Eric, did I see your hand? Uh, the name son, or the word son, and also count how many times only goes with it. And Emma, the word offering, or offer, the verb form of it. And Joe, the word see, which is found in different ways. See, see how many times you see the word see. Okay. 
verses 1 to 19. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> so you can you can get started on that on, on doing that and see what you can uh, come up with. And <clears throat> I'm going to try to deal with this tickle in my throat here. <clears throat> All right. Now, uh, as they are doing so, let's the rest of us pick up where we left off. And I recall that we had made it down through verse 12 in terms of subdividing it into paragraphs. And I believe we looked at verses 9 to 12 together. So this leaves us then verses 13 to 19. So what ideas do you have in terms of the next paragraph, the next thought section here, beginning in verse 13? Chapter 22, Genesis 22. Allison. Okay, all right. I would agree with that. And how would you summarize that? Okay, all right. All right. Yeah, you know, sometimes a short summary is good. Sometimes a little bit longer is is good. Uh, it it kind of depends. Um, I'd go with your little longer one, maybe a little better. God provides a ram or a substitute, you could say, something like that. That would bring in verse 13 a little bit more than just God provides. But it, you see what we're doing. Again, it's not really one's right and what's wrong to some degree. Uh, it's just trying to summarize what's the main point uh, here in these verses. So then what about uh, verses 15 to 19? Um, somebody have an idea of how to break that? Can we put it all together or should we divide it into a uh, smaller section? I would think so, yeah. And do you have a thought of how to summarize those words? Okay, okay. All right, all right. So, yeah, um, God swears an oath to bless Abraham according to the covenant. Yeah. Right. Sure. Sure. <clears throat> yeah, to seven words, something like God blesses Abraham according to the covenant or swears an oath to bless Abraham according to the covenant promises or something to that effect. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um <clears throat> And so then that leaves us with verse 19. Does that sound like an a individual thought there in that verse? See a few of you nodding your head. Okay. How would we summarize this verse then? Here with one verse, maybe a shorter summary would be better. <laughs> okay, Abraham returns. Yeah, 
to Beersheba or something to that effect. Yeah. All right. I would say so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the verses 20 and following get into some different ideas. Um, yeah. So we, <clears throat> the big fancy word we use for this is this here. And it's not pericope. Pericope is how we pronounce the word. That's the pericope. That's, that's the story. That's the section that all goes together here, verses 1 to 19. Um, <clears throat> and so the, even though we're in a narrative genre, that, this, this uh, idea of uh, pericope is, is definitely found here. Um, all right. Now, we started at the end of last time. Asked, I asked the question, what do you think is the key verse? As we see with narrative, typically there is one key verse, maybe two or three, a short section or something like that. Uh, and you often find it at the beginning or in the middle or the end. Um, and we had a couple thoughts, you may recall. Um, some thought verses 1 and 12 go together, and maybe you could even include verse 19 in that way. And that is God uh, tested Abraham, and he obeyed that. Others pointed, I think it was verses 8 and 14, if I remember correctly, about the idea of God providing. Um, So, let's now bring in our statistics and see if that will help answer that question. So, who did I give the name God? Was that you, Ben? How many did you get? Yeah. Five times we see the name God. And in the the Hebrew, that's Elohim. The name, typical name that we see for God in the Old Testament. We also have El and other related uh, forms of El, uh, but this one's Elohim. Um, All right, let's see. Heather, did I give you Abraham? How many did you get? Okay. Now, when you look at a uh, a particular translation, uh, sometimes the translation will summarize things um, instead of repeating words, it'll uh, either put it together or maybe replace it with a, a pronoun in this case. Uh, the Hebrew actually gives us 20 occurrences of Abraham in this section. So I, I'm not saying you miscounted, but it's probably the English translation that you're using. But the Hebrew itself gives us 20 occurrences of the name Abraham. Um, all right, let's see. Philip, what did I give you? Was it Isaac? How many did you get? Okay, that's, that's true. And Matthew, did I give you Yahweh or Lord? Okay, now here's another time. It's actually five. So the, your English translation may have not fully translated one. Um, but there are five occurrences of the name Yahweh, God's covenant name here in this passage. So notice here, let's summarize a little bit. We have God five times, Yahweh five times, Isaac five times, and Abraham 20 times. And uh, Eric, the word son. Okay. Okay, okay, all right. Okay, all right. Um, Again, according to the Hebrew count, there's 11 occurrences of the name son, or the word son. And uh, again, English can kind of adjust that slightly. Um, And then, did you count how many times only is used? Yeah. That, that is how we see it in the Hebrew. So, uh, son, or lad, or 
youth or child or something, but son in particular uh, is what is used here, and three times it has only son. All right, Emma, what did I give you? Offering? What did you get? Okay, yeah, if you count the noun and the verb, you get eight times. The, the Hebrew gives us that. So twice the verb and six times the noun. And so eight altogether. And then, Joe, I gave you the hardest one, actually. The word see, how many did you get? Zero. Well, okay, that's, that, that'll count. Okay, okay, well, that, that, that counts. That counts, you, yes. Um, it's actually found five times. And now what, what Joe said, you know, see and saw, okay, that's just past tense. And looked is a, a different way of saying the word see. Um, but actually the word provide is the word see. Okay. So in verse 8, for example, when, um, when Isaac asks um, uh, his question, Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself. Literally, the Hebrew says he will see to it. He will take care of it, is the idea. Okay? And provide is, I think, a fair way of saying it, but it's actually the word see. There's this seeing going on. Okay? God is testing Abraham. Do you see? Are you living by sight? Are you living by faith? Are you looking to me, or are you looking to your son? You see how, do you understand how the word see uh, is, is actually quite significant here in this passage? Okay. And then, of course, verse 14, uh, the word is used uh, here a few times, uh, twice, I guess. The Lord will provide. Right. Jehovah Jireh is what we often hear. Uh, Yahweh Yireh would be a little more accurate to the, the Hebrew there. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. In other words, God will see to it. He will provide for your needs. All right. So notice we have four of these words used five times. God, Isaac, Yahweh, and see. Then we have a multiple of five, Abraham, 20 times. Uh, son is 11, and offering or offer is 8. Um, now, this little statistic um, calls our attention to something here, doesn't it? What is used most? Emma. And then what's next? Eric? Yeah. Back to the question, which is our theme verse? I think this does call our attention to verse 11 and verse, or sorry, verse 1 and verse 12. Okay. I think this is our theme verse. Verse 1, God tested Abraham. And then verse 12, hey, do not lay your hand on the lad, as how the New King James says it, your son. Do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, <clears throat> I think this is the main point. But, 
obviously, the ideas of, of seeing, of God providing, is very much a part of this. The idea of offering, right? Eight times when you include the noun and the verb together. So, And if you put the two names of God together, God and Yahweh, that's ten times. So, I mean, both of these ideas are very important in the passage. But if you're going to point to one, I think the statistics lead us in the direction of Abraham and his son in this testing. And since he did live by faith, as we mentioned last week, he believed that uh, God would raise his son from the dead. Um, Therefore, God blesses him and provides a substitute. So here's where just a simple exercise. Now, we don't always get the accurate numbers in the English in comparison to the Hebrew or the Greek. Uh, but it, even in the English, if you have a good translation, uh, it's going to give you a direction to go in uh, on some of this. And this is just, this is common in any kind of genre, but it's especially common in narrative, as we see here. Okay, now let me ask you one other question. As you look at this section, verses 1 to 19, how can I ask this without giving it away? Um, The name God, let me put it this way, where do we see the name God in the passage? We see it all throughout the passage, at the beginning, at the end, you know, something like that. Where do we see it? Yeah, that's right, and that's my next question. You, you, you do see this shift. Note it's God, Elohim. God, creator God, all-powerful God. Elohim emphasizes creator and power, sovereignty. That's the emphasis of that name. That's at the beginning. Here comes you know, the, this sovereign, powerful God to Abraham. I'm going to test you. And then note, where does it transition? Okay, we, we see God there for the last time. Where's the first time we see Yahweh? Before that. 11. 11. And what's happening in verse 11? What's he doing? He's stopping Abraham. So here's God, right? This all-powerful, sovereign God who's created all things. You go sacrifice your son, but it's Yahweh, covenant Lord, saying stop. Do you see the point here? Now, we're not to divide up God's character. That's not the point. But a name communicates something. And so the name of sovereignty, of power, is given first. Fits with the idea of command here. Then the idea of substitution and provision, it's God's covenant name that is emphasized here. And notice, you see it for the first time there in verse uh, 11. And then, as Matthew said, you see it, um, let's see, is it twice in verse 14, and again in verse 15, and then in verse 16. So kind of all together there with Yahweh naming the place, Yahweh provides. Abraham naming it, Yahweh provides. And then in verse 15 and 16, 
the ideas of the promise, the covenant. So <clears throat> look at your statistics. It, it usually leads you in the right direction uh, on the main point and the emphasis. And then, especially in the Old Testament, look at the name of God that is used. And here is a, a prime example of the name of God leading us in the direction of what Moses is trying to communicate to us here, and ultimately the Holy Spirit. All right. Well, questions, comments? Verse 1? Uh, that's God, uh, Elohim. from one language to another you need to use the language that people know and understand and so to to use the term God is what we were, we would understand uh, we have uh, the translations have led us to understand what Lord means um, but even so the idea of Lord is master sovereign um, is, is there and as I've said before I think to translate God's covenant name as Lord is actually an incomplete way of saying it. Uh, covenant Lord would be much better. Lord is there. He is sovereign. He is our master. He is the suzerain in the suzerain and vassal treaty. Um, but it's far more than that. Uh, he is, it's by way of covenant. Uh, even Yahweh in Exodus 3 emphasizes not just I am, transcendence in being, but also I will be, the idea of presence and imminence. And so I think Lord is a, a really an incomplete way of translating that word. But it's come to us that way because of what the Hebrews did with the third commandment. And they, they, they were hesitant to, to actually say the name in, in case they would break it, uh, break the third commandment. Um, but, uh, you know, God's personal name, Yahweh, is used about 7,000 times in the Old Testament. Elohim is second place, 2,600 times. That statistic in and of itself leads us to uh, the position that saying God's name is what he intended. He wants us to use his name. Now, how do you say that in another language? That's challenging. This is one reason why I say I think everybody should take Greek and Hebrew. <laughs> okay, so you can understand it better. But if we're going to say it in English, I think covenant Lord is the best way of saying it. Because it captures the idea of lordship as well as the idea of uh, God's relationship with us by way of covenant. Um, so in our English translations, typically um, when you have God's personal name, it's in capital, uh, capital letters, Lord. And so that is helpful. It sets it apart for us so that we can see that. Um, now, you mentioned Jehovah. Uh, Jehovah is really a, a combination of two names. It's a combination of 
the letters for uh, Yahweh, the four key letters, and then the vowels for Adonai. You put them together, and you, you end up with something like Jehovah. Um, most likely, now we anglicize it, but most likely Yahweh was was closer to how it was pronounced. Um, but since the Hebrews didn't pronounce it, it that pronunciation's been lost, and we're guessing a bit. Um, so, there's an important question. Um, how do you do that? And that goes with any word. <laughs> um, how do you bring it into another language that communicates what was there originally? So, yeah, Susan. Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, some of the more, if you will, formal names apply in all kinds of settings. But there are some that apply very specifically to something. Um, and you are right there in Genesis 16, verse 13. She says, you are the God who sees. Um, and that is, instead of Yahweh, we have God. But the idea of see and provide, right, it's the same same root uh, ideas, and so it's named the heir, the high roy, um, and that's now brings in the idea of the well. Um, but uh, yeah, God actually has hundreds of names. When you include all the metaphorical names like shepherd or father, or and some of them are really kind of amazing. Um, God is a bear robbed of her cubs. Her God is rot. There's some really kind of amazing uh, figurative names that are given to him. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It it, um, is both are done. Both are done. But obviously Shepard, for example, is is very clearly um, given there. Now, Bear Robber for Cubs is... May, is a descriptive name, you might call it. Um, and so that's, you know, an adjective or participle or something that's being used in that way. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, um, let's move on to the next thing here. As I wanted us to do is not just to talk principially, but also to do something practical um, to help in these ways. So the next thing I'd like us to do is uh, 
Let's come over here to this one now and talk about an epistle. All right, this isn't in any particular order. Uh, but generally speaking, narrative is maybe the easiest genre to understand just because it's a story, right? Um, letter may be the next easiest because it's a letter. <laughs> um, and, and so the challenges of interpretation aren't quite as great. You know, apocalyptic is rather difficult. <laughs> hey, but a letter, not so much. Narrative, not so much. But that said, we still need to keep certain things in mind um, because it is in a certain genre and we interpret it accordingly. So as I say here, of course, uh, an epistle is a letter. And as an epistle, it is primarily a personal letter. Sometimes it's a corporate letter. So think of uh, the letter to the Ephesians. That's not written to a person, it's written to a church. Um, and that one also emphasizes not just um, a particular church, but we, we believe actually it was a circular letter. In other words, it was sent around maybe to all the seven churches that we see in uh, Revelation 2 and 3. Um, so, you know, you read the book of Colossians, for example, it's to the church in Colossae, but then Luke tell, or sorry, Paul tells uh, them to also read it in Laodicea. So it's, it's specific to a church, but then it's supposed to go beyond that. Ephesians seems to have been more general to begin with. But that said, because it's a letter, you'll see names uh, mentioned at the beginning and the end. Uh, you'll see uh, some very specific things that are addressed to that specific congregation or person. So think of Philemon, for example, very specific to the situation there. Um, but simply, if you think of it as a personal letter, then you're going to observe things uh, accordingly. And so it uh, <clears throat> begins with the salutation, you know, Paul, an apostle, Jesus Christ, to, you know, such and such. You know, maybe Timothy's with them or whatever. And, th and this is how they typically would start it. Um, now, that said, epistles can have other genres mixed in. Most notably, history or narrative, because it's referring to some event uh, or some setting or something like that. There can be prophecy in there. There can be law. Obviously, Paul gives a bunch of commands. There can be poetry. So you can have different genres mixed into it, but the primary genre here is it's a letter. Okay. And so, some things to keep in mind here then as we come uh, to an epistle um, let me start with this one. Um, when we write a letter to somebody, and maybe I should ask, especially for the younger generation, have you ever actually written a letter on paper to somebody? <laughs> okay, good, good. <laughs> Most of us now, it's right, an email or a text or we call them or <laughs> something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, I still have letters from my grandparents, you know, when I was so high. I, I, when my grandmother and grandfather died <coughs> my, on my dad's side, um, they found a, a letter I wrote when I was five years old, and I was telling grandma that I accepted Jesus into my heart. 
you know, that's that's a nice letter to now have. And and you know, some of us, maybe all of us, have letters like that that you know, um, either we received from someone or like I just mentioned, I had written with the help of my parents, of course, <laughs> at the time, and I got it back, you know, years later. Um, and so all that's to say is this. If you write an email or you write a text, you can cut and paste, can't you? And you can go back and say, oh, yeah, I wanted to do that and say that, and so you add it in. Um, or, no, I didn't like how that's worded, so, you know, you hit the delete button and, and you do it again. We're used to this kind of writing. We're used to, can you say, thinking as we write, rather than thinking ahead of time before we write. Now, we're going to do that to some degree, but a large part of our writing today is we edit on the go. Instead of thinking and editing in our mind before we actually put it down on paper. Now, if you are writing a letter on paper, you do tend to think more about those things ahead of time, don't you? Now add the whole dimension here in the first century, where paper, you couldn't just go to Walmart and buy a, a ream of paper. And it costs a bit more, too. Um, if you're writing on a piece of parchment and you're using ink that can't come off, you know, these kind of things, you, you're much more deliberative before you actually say anything on paper or parchment or sheepskin or whatever it happens to be. And so because of that, um, I think we have somewhat inadvertently, this is one of those things how technology can be harmful. To be able to go back and cut and paste can be very good. But it also is somewhat harmful in the sense that we don't think as carefully about what we say when we're saying it. And so then we can impose that approach on Paul or Luke or John or whoever it is, right? But their words are not random. Their words are not just a stream of consciousness. Now, occasionally Paul gets off on a tangent and never returns. Okay? But... Most of the time, it's extremely detailed in terms of how it is thought out and put down. And so we can say that every word means something in an epistle, and that's true for any, any genre. But the point is, when we think of a letter, don't think of it as casually as we may think of writing a note to somebody. Um, it, was, it was very intentional. So therefore, the introduction usually gives us an idea of what's going to come in the letter. So the first verse, the first few verses uh, for Romans, maybe you can go down through verse 17 as the introduction, certainly down through verse 7. Um, but those first words will lay a groundwork of what's going to come in the rest of the letter. So don't rush through those first words. Very intentional. Even when Paul says the same kind of thing. Okay, an apostle of Jesus Christ, you know, or grace and peace to you, and you know that kind of thing. It, it, it's maybe you could say common or expected in in letters, but it's also intentional, especially if it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different salutation 
you're like, oh, Paul's wanting to call attention to something here. So pay attention to those things. And so there, that's at the beginning. And then you also uh, will see a very deliberate structure and flow in the book. Now, a short one, like 3 John, you're not going to see a lot of structure and, and flow. <laughs> Romans, you definitely do. It's very deliberately laid out. And so look for that. And if you receive a letter from your friend, um, it probably is going to be a bit more flow, stream of consciousness kind of thing. Um, if you receive a letter from, I don't know, the president of the college or something like that, you know, it's going to be much more uh, organized. Paul's on that end. John's on that end. It's much more organized. Look for it. Look for the structure. This is why when I'm preaching or teaching, I'll say, well, look, here are these uh, sections go together, or we're going to do that this morning in Acts. We're going to see how, uh, again, how Luke has organized the book of Acts. And so look for those things. And then, of course, for the conclusion, um, look for summary statements. Those summary statements will help emphasize some of the key things that Paul or whoever it was wanted to say in the letter. And then, of course, you tend to have greetings, very personal uh, and so on. So <clears throat> look for this. Um, now, the other thing, uh, or another thing to, to keep in mind when you're reading an epistle is as much as you possibly can understand the historical context. Um, on vacation this summer, we, uh, we live-streamed uh, a, ser- a service because... Some churches aren't allowing people to come, and we were at a place where the church we typically go to up on the mountain was closed, and so we just live-streamed something because it was easier, um, and and so forth. And uh, uh, Anyway, the man who is preaching is someone I'm sure you've probably all heard of, and uh, it's supposed to be really, really good and so forth, right? He preached on Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4. And he said absolutely nothing about the context of the book of Hebrews. All he said was the supremacy of Christ in verses 1 to 4. And that was good. There was nothing wrong about it. But it said absolutely nothing about the purpose of the letter of Hebrews. Why was the author, whoever he was, why was he writing these words? They're not random. They're addressing a specific historical context. And so, in that particular case, in many ways, he missed the whole point. Now, it, as much as we can, put it into the story of Acts. And this is what I've been doing with you as I've gone through Acts. Well, Paul wrote this letter at this point. He wrote this letter at this point. The better you understand the historical context. I mentioned 1 Corinthians here. um, Was it last Sunday or the Sunday before? Um, Right. The better you understand that historical context, that narrative, the better you'll understand why Paul says the things that he does. It doesn't answer every question. And there are certainly aspects of the historical context we don't know. We can speculate on some things, but we can't answer uh, other things. Um, But the more you can do that, uh, the better you'll understand uh, these things. The same is true in the Old Testament. Um, 
When was Isaiah written? What was the historical context? What about Joel? The better you understand where these things fit into the story of Israel, you know, First Kings or Second Kings or Chronicles or whatever, uh, the better you'll be able to um, understand why the things are being said, and it opens up uh, meaning to us that we're going to miss if we just read it in isolation. And so as we're reading a letter, an epistle, let's do that as much as possible. Granted, again, some things we're not going to be able to answer or understand in that way, but there is quite a bit we can, um, especially for certain letters. So do that as much as possible. Um, All right. Um, Instead of, I've got a couple more points here to mention. So instead of doing that, let me... Conclude here with any questions or comments on this. Joe. Typically, we'll look at the end, or what's the what's the return address on the on it, or whatever. Yep. But that was common in the first century to start. Here's who wrote it, and then to whom it was written, um, or something to that effect. Yep. Other comments or questions? Yeah. So commentaries will will debate that. And some will side on this, some this, some say we're not sure. Um, Where it becomes a real challenge is something like 1 Corinthians, where it's it's very likely the case that Paul is quoting them, you know, whatever, six or eight times, whatever it is, and then he responds. But it can be hard to know. Is he quoting them? Uh, or is he saying it himself? And, and you know, things like that can be uh, add to the challenge of, of what's going on and, and how to understand it. Um, so, you know, we're, in some ways we're interpreting in the dark, but, you know, you, you piece together as much as you can to give light to, to our understanding. And here's where uh, historical context in the sense of history of interpretation can help us. We've got 2,000 years of people interpreting this. And sometimes an older commentary, before all the revisionist history and liberal ideas set in, can be much more helpful because they're not biased with all this stuff, the liberals wanting us to think something crazy. Uh, On the other hand... Some of those older ones don't have as much archaeological and manuscript evidence as we do today. And so there are some things we understand better today than, say, when Calvin wrote it or, you know, whoever even, you know, 100 years ago. So um, this is why I say we need to be students of the word. It, it takes some effort. And some things are easy and some things are challenging. Uh, so 
All right. Well, Beth's going to throw the bell at here, me here in a minute. So let's, let's pray together. <laughs> All right. Lord, we thank you um, for your word that you have given to us. We are thankful, Lord, that you have preserved it. We are thankful that you have given us your spirit to understand it. And we do pray, Lord, that you would guide us into all truth and that you would help us to interpret well what you have given to us. Um, It's amazing, really, when we uh, look at all the different viewpoints and and interpretations out there about all kinds of things, and especially your word, that um, you wonder we, we can even despair of coming to the right understanding. But we know that we can. You have made us in your image. You have given us your spirit. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us the skills to understand your word as you intended it to be understood and and therefore believed and obeyed. Lord, we ask now that you would strengthen us as we worship and uh, uh, as we use these means of grace. We pray that you would be honored in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> 